Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. There are more important things to sort of campaign about in football than <laughs> making people aware that Rennie Hibbegeeta does not deserve the credit that he gets for that scorpion kick. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome back to the F1 pod here on Off the Ball. It's episode 13. Unlucky for some, but not for us. We've still got the dream team. We've got uh, Bernie Collins, the F1 pundit and former head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula 1 team. And we've got John Watson as well, the five-time Grand Prix winner. You can get the F1 pod wherever you get your podcasts, usually in the uh, F1 pod podcast feed, the Off the Ball daily podcast feed as well. And the F1 pod and Off the Ball is brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza. Real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. Bernie and John, how are things? Good, thank you. Yeah, not bad after a sweaty weekend. Uh, I mean, I have to say up in Liverpool where I was, wasn't quite as hot, but it was a very nice day. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, we have to touch on it, guys. Qatar and and it's been the talk of the of the weekend. Bernie, the, the, I mean, I'm looking at my list of... of Impact on different drivers here. Uh, reports that Esteban Ocon was sick in his helmet at one point. Uh, Alex Albon had to be treated for, quote, acute heat exposure. Logan Sargent retired due to intense dehydration. Lance Stroll nearly passing out in his car or passing out in his car. George Russell said he nearly passed out. And Lando Norris said the heat made it, uh, quote, much too dangerous to drive. Um, I mean, this is insane, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think... You know, maybe people have just missed it in Qatar. There was so much else going on with the curb in the new track surface. It was clearly a lot hotter than it was the previous year that we'd been there. The track is very demanding. It's very high speed. Singapore is, is you know, renowned for being the hottest track that we go to or some of the toughest conditions in terms of the humidity and the heat. And it's both of those things together that make it really tough. But Singapore is a very, very different speed of circuit. And therefore, that's one of the elements that makes Singapore at least a little bit more manageable. Um, And I think it will be, I I don't know how much comes into the knock-on effect. We've had three very hot races in a row now. Singapore, Japan was much hotter than we expected and definitely more humid than we expected. And then into Qatar. So you've got three on the bounce. You've got three races in a month. That's very demanding on the drivers and the body. So I'd imagine there's an element of, recovery from the previous two as well as this one and I've not spoke to any of the drivers or or the teams really around it but you know from Esteban's point to be sick in your helmet on, re- on lap 15 of the 57 race is pretty grim for the remainder of the re- of the race um so yeah pretty brutal conditions a fine line I think it's definitely in the comments when you read anything between yes, they're athletes. Yes, we're pushing the limit. Yes, they're not probably not enduring as much as maybe more historic racers did in terms of the physical exertion. But is that too far on the limit? Um, and we do so much for safety in terms of the circuit and stuff. And if we have drivers right at this point of, you know, overexertion, is that too far? Is it too far, John? Well, I've got a lot of views on this subject. But I raced in conditions like that, but in, in different cars, different circuits. There's a mixture of what is fitness all about and what is stamina all about. And I think that there's a major focus on driver fitness to the degree where you've got particularly the tall drivers. And you've got Esteban Ocon, you've got Alex Albon, you've got George Russell, you've got others, uh, Lance Stroll to a, a degree. And you look at them, they're anorexic. 
their upper bodies, there's not a, an ounce of fat on them. Then you look at someone like Lewis Hamilton or Alonso or uh, who else is there, sort of mid, sort of five foot eight, five foot nine height. They've got a certain amount of mass body index fat. And you need that fat there to give you some support when your body's being put under extreme stress to enable you to get through. And those drivers I've mentioned, I think, I mean, Lewis sadly didn't, didn't get to race and, and his incident in turn one. You know, arguably Lewis might have won that race because I reckon he was, could have handled the conditions extremely well, as I think Alonso did. But I think there's a mixture between stamina and fitness. And I just worry about these taller drivers because of the pressures that the teams are bringing to them to get as much weight off their upper body as possible for reasons of centre of gravity in the car and just generally you're carrying more weight because you're a taller driver. But aside from that, I also believe that the preparation that the drivers were going through were probably not as good as maybe they could have been. If they, I mean, they, I suppose teams have got dietitians, they've got trainers. The way that you hydrate before an event is not to drink lots of water, or I'm afraid, as Karun Chandrick said in the broadcast, you take a hydration tablet. Well, actually, I don't think there is anything as a hydration tablet. There's tablets you take to rehydrate, but not to prevent hydration. And part of the way you do that is, is what you eat. And the way that you hydrate, prepare your body, in my view, in my experience, is that you eat things such as vegetables and fruit and let the hydration happen in a more natural way than just taking a litre of fluid and necking it back. Because all you do is you just pass it straight through your system. It doesn't get absorbed. So there's a number of areas I think teams could have done better for their drivers, particularly the taller drivers in preparation. And I think the, the drivers like Lewis or Alonso or maybe Valtteri Bottas or one or two others, who, have, who carry a little bit more what I would call body weight, body fat. That's what they were using to feed themselves off through the race. And they're the ones that look to be in good shape towards the end of the race. But obviously there's a concern of drivers are talking about potentially passing out. I mean, forget what Nat Lando Norris said. I mean, he's neither tall nor fat, but he did a great job in the race, in fairness. But um, he's just jumping on the bandwagon with another Lando opinion. Bernie, from a, from a race strategy perspective, like in, in your former guys as, as head of race strategy with with Aston Martin, when when you get to a track weekend and and the heat is that bad, and you know that the drivers are going to be going through it, like how how do you prepare for that in in the in the meeting rooms? Can you prepare prepare for that? I think a lot of that is probably left largely to the driver and their trainer. They've all got trainers that they work with. They work, you know, extensively, as John sort of outlined on training in hot conditions or trying to get the hydration levels up. So, you know, all of these guys have top, top level trainers alongside them. So to a large degree, the engineering function maybe doesn't necessarily get involved with that. I think one of the things that John sort of touched on is this race now, if it was to be run in that condition again, a standout fitness level requirement, whereas previously Singapore was a standout level. And maybe it has gone or had gone too far on the fitness because that's what all of the other circuits demand. And this one is demanded something slightly different. Um, but yeah, you definitely be aware of it in terms of in terms of what you're expecting the driver do, the reaction that you're trying to get from them. You know that how much weight, for example, they're going to lose through the race. So you need to make allowances for that. Those are the types of things that the engineers tend to become um, interested in. And I think a big, big influence this week, apart from the heat and the humidity, was what happened in terms of the tyres. So the fact that they were given three mandatory stops, pushing every single lap largely, 
um, meant that the race was much more physical than it would have otherwise been. So even if it had been a cold race, this race was going to be much more physical than others just because you're doing 57 qualifying, no, no, not qualifying speed, but close to qualifying type laps because you're not limited by tyres. And we have not had that in a race. We don't even have that in a sprint race. In the sprint race, there's still a degree of tyre management. Yes, you're pushing for a few laps at the start, but then after that, it's largely management. You're doing lifts in certain high-speed corners. You're maybe lifting off end of straight. The loads just aren't there. And then this is an example where, unfortunately, the tyre regulations, the drop of wind on race day, mm. everything went into making this very intense environment. And again, I've not spoken to anyone in the teams, but I wonder how much that element came as a surprise. I wonder how many people had actually linked all those elements together and realised how difficult it would be in advance. Because there wasn't a lot of talk, definitely from the media side. Um, so I don't know if it was sort of, not, not a surprise, but nobody put all the elements together, really. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one too, John, isn't it? Like the tyre... The, the, the I guess procedures at the weekend slightly different from what we've seen, as Bernie says, and 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 that played into it as well. Like, is that the way forward? I know F one has come a long way in terms of tire strategy and and degradation and and how that's all treated, but uh, can it go even further? Well, this situation of Pirelli was dumped on the teams basically on Sunday morning. They didn't have an option, so the the, the kind of strategy, tire strategy that some teams would have implemented, would have created a different scenario in the race. But effectively, everybody was doing three, 50, three equal, whatever it was, 18 or 19 lap stints on tyres. They had to run both or at least two different compounds, but most started on the, on the yellow and did a stint on the whites and maybe went back to the yellows again. So indeed, I mean, there was a, a different dynamic introduced, catching people unawares, and it was sort of going into no man's land. No one had ever really been there at a, at a particular circuit where you've got a lot of high G in high temperatures, high humidity, and the expectation is that you have to push for the entirety of the, of the Grand Prix. And some drivers seem to have that capacity more than others. I mean, look, I've, I've also vomited in my helmet, not in a race, but doing a test. And I can assure you it is no pleasant thing. Or to find yourself going through a sequence of very fast corners, not unlike in Turkey, where they've got that long double or triple left-hand corner, which probably generates even higher Gs than the ones we were seeing in Qatar. So drivers have experienced those kind of loads over the duration of a Grand Prix, but where I think Qatar was different was because of the mandating of the tyre regulation. Uh, then you were essentially doing it for the entirety of the race rather than, as uh, Bernie had mentioned, you can maybe back off a little bit, lift and coast or just breathe it a bit in the corner and give yourself a chance. But it was a different scenario, one that maybe was unique unlikely to reoccur. This Grand Prix will be six weeks later in 2024. So the temperatures, ambient and, and humidity ought to be lower. But I, I still think, and Bernie mentioned that both Singapore and Japan were, certainly Japan was abnormally warm. Again, it was a little earlier than normal. Um, Singapore is always hot it's on the equator. Maybe the preparation for drivers now in light of the possibility of having a number of races consecutively where you're running in these extreme conditions, they might look at how they prepare their drivers. And I still maintain that there is a difference between preparing a driver for his race fitness and preparing a driver to have a stamina, a level of stamina that will enable them to you know, drive through that event relatively comfortably. 
you, you referenced an, an incident there, John, where you, where you vomited in, in your helmet from your own career. Like you'll have uh, the utmost empathy then I'd imagine with, with Esteban Ocon from the weekend. How, how did that incident come about in your career? Well, I was just, I was doing a test. This is way back in 1993. Williams, Renault invited a number of TV people down to Paul Ricard to drive the car that Alain Prost had won that world championship, that year's world championship in. This was the most advanced, sophisticated Grand Prix car of its day, active suspension. Everything was controlled by a computer. I mean, it was just phenomenal to drive. And I hadn't driven a single-seater at that point for a considerable length of time. And when you then were exposed to the, the quite violent levels of acceleration, braking, lateral loads, so you're, you're basically your, your abdomen, your gut, is sort of going, I mean, I mean, going in and out like that. And inevitably, it can lead to motion sickness, which is what I had. So you're, you're accelerating pretty hard, and all of a sudden, you find yourself being ill in your helmet. Now, because of the balaclava helmet that we wear, it contains, I don't want to get gruesome about this, mm-hmm. but it contains whatever you might bring up. I don't know what Esteban Ocon, whether he brought up volumes or whether it was only a small volume, but it, you know, to have that in your helmet and driving around, and the, the more that it happens, actually, it actually is very, it's difficult because suddenly your breathing is affected by it. You're trying to get a breath and you're struggling to get your breath and at the same time you're being you're vomiting in your helmet. It's not a great experience, not something nice. And I think Esteban Ocon did an outstanding job in, in the Grand Prix to bring that car home and get points. And um, you know, I think Alpine should be very proud of him. Absolutely, yeah. No, it is a look. It is a gruesome topic. Sorry for anyone eating their dinner or their breakfast listening to this, but it is. It is one of those topics that just. If you want the color of all the little lumps and carrots <laughs> for breakfast, or whatever. we put a warning over this uh, this podcast this week. Um, like I saw the argument, Bernie, even after you know this whole argument of the heat and everything. I, there, there's some people making the argument online. You know, drivers are just cannon fodder. They're they're almost pawns in the entertainment business and they're just being thrust out there in, in, in temperatures and conditions in which they shouldn't be like what do you say I guess to, to that argument I think it's going to be an interesting one because I think if the drivers had realized pre-race how tough it was going to be if there was such an understanding of bringing all those elements together that we discussed maybe there would have been more of a discussion and in this instance there was no because the tyre rules was done on safety grounds there was no kickback option there was no oh, should we do that? There was no room for discussion. I can guarantee that in um, Austin, when the drivers go to next and the driver's briefing, it's going to come up and it's going to be really heavily discussed there and changes will be made going forward. So I think it would have been interesting if there had been a discussion or a realisation pre-race, if there'd been like a Sunday morning emergency driver's meeting, whatever the case might be. It would have been interesting to see who'd have stood up then who'd have said this isn't the right conditions for us to go racing or we're not happy to go racing or whatever. But probably when you're five laps into the race, the drivers then in the helmet, in the car, don't, you know, the desire is to keep racing and to do as well as you can. So that sort of overrules the other desires at that point. So there would have been two very different discussions, I think, inside or outside the car. So I don't, I just, the drivers do have a, a good voice in many things. You know, they do have the drivers meeting, they do have their, groups where they discuss together any safety issues and stuff so I fully think that will be happening in Austin and there's been a lot of discussion about what happens in other series be that temperature sensors in the car you know the drivers have the biometric gloves that we use if there's an accident so there's there is information and data there that we can be using and could be using from a safety ground going forward to say you know this is the hard limit of either ambient or it's a very complex 
formula, right? It's ambient, track temperature, humidity, wind, G-forces. There's a lot that goes into where the limit lies. And we're only really starting to explore that. Um, but it, I think it would be it would be extremely interesting to be in the driver's meeting next weekend because that is going to be where I think the kickback is going to come. Whatever they're saying publicly would be very different in that room, I think. I can imagine it, it, that's the room in which they'll, they'll certainly let their feelings be known. Like John, that's a, that's an excellent point Bernie makes. That even just the, I guess the technology and those, the, you know, the biometric gloves and everything else. The technology has developed. I saw some people point, you know, pointing back to uh, the example. It was the Indy 500 in 1953. Carl Scarborough was, was a driver who withdrew with a heat-related illness. And, and then died in the uh, the infield medical center afterwards. And even drivers of the weekend were talking about the fact that these guys are hitting such speeds that concentration needs to be at its absolute optimum. And, and with the heat, that's just not possible. Well, I mean, to, to recap what we've been talking about, it was almost a perfect storm in terms of all the elements that came together on the, on the day of the Grand Prix. And it was all capped off principally by this tire regulation change. Had that not been introduced, I suspect that probably maybe one or two drivers might have struggled, but not the number that did. So, again, you have to sit down and talk about, analyse it, and come up with maybe better solutions. And there are always going to be approaches to how do we make sure that driver's safety and driver's health is given principal consideration. Look, I can think back to when I went to South America for the first time in 1974, early part of January, and I'll tell you, it was it was unbelievably hot and the humidity was high and we had cars with front mounted radiators in them water pipes running through them so it's not something that's new but where maybe formula one is now and the level of technology that and then just the, the, the design criteria is so just amazing drivers are not accustomed to being confronted with these kind of conditions Look, the other event i went to 1984 dallas grand prix when I stepped out of the hotel in the morning, I thought I stepped into an Aga oven. It was on. I've never been anywhere in my life, pre or post, that's been as hot. And it just, you couldn't escape it. Just, it's just like somebody just put their arms around you and just tried to suffocate you. Mm. And even the same in Malaysia at, uh, Sakira, at the Sakir circuit, similar kind of temperature, big G force corners as well. It's not new. But what I think compounded the whole thing was this tire matter in the interest of safety. I remember it was done in the interest of safety, but as a consequence of doing it in the interest of safety, it's cast up other questions about the safety and uh, the, the uh, driver's health and potentially suffering heat exhaustion and even worse. I mean, I've actually watched that race recently, that Indy race, uh, and there was a curiosity that but that was a front engine car with the engine literally almost alongside you, a big exhaust pipe and, Different era, different times, drivers weren't prepared. They, in fact, spent most of the time eating steak and drinking beer. <laughs> yeah, different times for sure. Uh, look, this, this heat conversation is not going to go anywhere. But uh, yeah, as you say, Bernie, the, the interesting to see that driver's meeting the next time around at Austin, uh, what comes out of that, if anything. Um, the, you've written a brilliant piece, Bernie, as well, on Formula1.com on the McLaren performance the weekend. We've touched on McLaren slightly. Um Piastri, Norris, P2, P3, a brilliant weekend for them. As you said in your piece, Landon Norris, kind of saying afterwards the win would have been possible for him if, if he hadn't made those mistakes in qualifying. Do you, do you think he's right there? Going through, going through, I didn't, I didn't think so. The, the, don't get me wrong. The McLaren has 
totally closed the gap a lot more than people thought to Red Bull. They had a very strong weekend through a lot of the sessions. I think Norris's comment came from if they'd qualified better, if they'd started on the grid better, they could have beaten Verstappen. And he did through the Grand Prix close the gap to Verstappen from the grid position. But Red Bull did a strategy that they just extended the stints as long as they could, played it very safe with traffic, played it very safe with the potential safety cars, really just protected stuff off, but not the quickest strategy on paper. So they sacrificed race time in order to protect from a last minute safety car or what have it. McLaren went the other way and did more the fastest strategy or closer to the fastest strategy. Obviously, everyone's limited by the tyre life. So I think that flatters the pace a little bit, as well as that we don't know. We never know how much Max is managing. You know, he wasn't one of the people that looked the worst at the end of the race. He had some margin out in front, so maybe he is managing that line between absolute performance and his physical health a bit more. You know, he he had a good gap at the end of the race. So it, I think it's unfair for Norris to come out and say, and part of that is just because he's blaming himself. He's saying, if I'd done a better job in qualifying, we could have won this race. But just on paper, it doesn't look that way to me. It looks like Red Bull did a slower strategy with a driver that managed a bit more. And it, you know, they let McLaren get in with what they thought was a safe distance and they managed that distance throughout the race. So I don't think that a better qualifying would have allowed McLaren to win. But impressive how much the gap has been closed yeah certainly an impressive performance from 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 the team at the weekend um it would be remiss of us not to mention sorry i haven't even mentioned the fact that max verstappen clinched a third a third driver's championship i guess it's one of those things that we were waiting for for so long that uh it's kind of gone under the radar from the weekend and um, but but john one man that uh, i know you'll be absolutely delighted to talk about is is oscar piastri uh your boy uh, a superstar in the making i think and certainly be remiss not to mention him well, I think he did an excellent job, uh, both in qualifying for the sprint race and then winning the sprint race, uh, and then finishing second in the Grand Prix. I just go back to the point you're making about Red Bull and Max Verstappen did. That was an extremely managed race by Red Bull and by Max. They they ran the pace of the nearest cars to them, and they kept the gap as much as they needed to do. They could let it close a bit, and they could extend it with relative ease. So it was a, a very controlled race, but extremely well done by Red Bull team and by Max. Uh, McLaren clearly have come forward very quickly since really, I think, in Austria and both drivers, but particularly Piastri, who is coming in his, in his debut season. Remember, Lando Norris is in his fifth year of Formula One. I did 10 years. I did So I would be at the same point halfway through my career. Uh, and, you know, he's no, no, he's no newcomer. He made errors. Those errors were down to him. And the reason I believe he made the errors is now he's having to react and respond to what he's got as a teammate, Oscar Piastri. And what I like about Piastri is he goes about it in a manner. He's not there to try and make himself some kind of rock and roll, look at me kind of guy. He is a young man who's got a career ahead of him, who wants to be a world champion. And he focuses on the important elements of what he has to do to, to achieve that. And it doesn't get involved in all this other, you know, a marketing program behind Lando Norris, which is half a budget of a, a Formula 2 team these days. So he's just doing his job and he's doing it exceptionally well. And I think the mistakes that Norris made are as a straight consequence of the pace that Piastri is illustrating. And remember, Piastri is still in his first year. He's going to racetracks he's never competed on. So he's having to learn on the hoof. And I think he's done an outstanding job. And I would expect him in the remaining races this year to continue that progress. How Norris will respond 
or whether he goes and cries to his mammy, mammy, mammy. We have to wait and see. Perlando, Perlando, John. He's always what do you mean, Perlando? He's as rich as Crucius. <laughs> well, when you put it like that, in fairness, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not much sympathy. He's living a good life. Uh, I know I have sympathy, but not a lot. Of course, of course. It's great to see. At least it's great to see two drivers who are who are keeping each other on their toes. You know, some teams, I guess, that the the gulf and the divide between the two is uh, is far from interesting. So at least at McLaren, there's there's there's, there's a team there that that have given us something. But but, but Shane, just it'll be interesting to see because obviously now, uh, you might say by de, de facto Norris is the number one driver because of his status in the team, his position in the team, whatever. And is there now going to be discussions taking place? behind closed doors, wherein a bit of, you know, rattling the cage, you know, I'm the man, you should be supporting me, rather than supporting or both of us, or maybe the shift, the change is coming. Is, is now Piastri going to be perceived to be the number one driver? So I would expect there'll be a bit of cage rattling going on following uh, Qatar, and before we get out to, and even when we are out in, in, in Austin, or the Cota USA Grand Prix. Mm. That'll be interesting for sure to keep an eye on. We just have to take a very uh, quick, short ad break, guys. We'll be back in just a second. John Watson and Bernie Collins with us on the F1 pod. Back in just a sec. Hello, Shane Hannon here, host of the F1 pod on Off The Ball, which is available every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the Grand Prix action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 pod from Off The Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado, the F1 pod. The F1 Pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One, yeah, we go to town on it. Yeah, you're very welcome back to episode 13 of the F1 Pod on Off The Ball weekly between now and the end of the season. After race weekends, live on Wednesdays after race weeks in the F1 Pod podcast feed and the Off The Ball daily podcast feed, wherever you get your podcast. Myself, Shane Hannon, and this week we have Bernie Collins, the former head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula One team. And we have John Watson as well, former driver and five-time Formula One Grand Prix winner. Uh, guys, I did want to touch on on Lance Stroll. Um, he's been in the, the headlines, of course, after the weekend. Uh, one of his press conferences, I think afterwards, or certainly one of the interviews he did, six words he spoke in all to the three questions that were asked of him. Uh, finished just outside the points in 11th at the Qatar Grand Prix at the weekend. It started from 17th on the grid, so, so not bad. Although if you look at the record himself against Fernando Alonso, his teammate this season, uh, Alonso finished sixth. He's 136 points ahead of Stroll. He started every race inside the top 10 and Stroll has only started the top 10 six times this season. Alonso 15-2 ahead in the qualifying head-to-head over Stroll. Uh, Stroll did, of course, miss the Singapore Grand Prix after a big big crash in, in Q1. But, um, Bernie, it's 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 really, really not been a good time for, for Lance Stroll of late. Yeah, it's not, you know. And it's interesting because, I guess, in the media, we latch on to certain things. So, Checo gets such a hard time against Verstappen, and that's clear because it's the front of the field. But further back, there are these big gaps between some of the teammates. And as you say, Stroll Alonso being one of them, and he just, it seems like it's sort of fallen apart there. Whatever the relationship between Stroll, his support, his background team, whatever's happened. There was, there have been periods, you know, at the start of the year where it was looking a bit closer. Both cars were scoring more points. And then it seems to have just really drifted. And there have been times in the past where definitely Lance has got into this where he's had an accident or something. And then the confidence is just shattered. 
and then the performance is nowhere. And that, you know, the last few races, he doesn't seem pushing to get get into the car. He doesn't seem ecstatic to be there, you know. And I get the six-word interview. The drivers hate doing those press interviews at the end of the race or the end of a session, especially when you've had a bad session, you've gone out in Q1 again. It's very hard to stand there and defend, isn't it? But it just feels like he needs a bit of bit more support or something from that. I don't know, but the performance isn't there. And whatever it is that's causing that performance to have dropped off so suddenly from, you know, there was definitely glimmers of hope at the beginning of the year. He's always going to get beaten by Fernando, I think. You know, I don't think anyone's justifying that. But to to be performing as badly in a car that's as good, it's the 15-2 is interesting, but it's the gap, it's the time gap between the two positions is, that's actually the more shocking bit. Being beaten, you know, Verstappen beating Checo every race is, is fine, but if the gap's small enough, but the gap being as big as it appears to be at times, and the 11th place in this race is mainly because from what I see in strategy, they boxed under that safety car early, so they saved themselves a pit stop, which a few others did as well, and that seemed to have, you know, got them to the end of the race, but there's a lot of work to be done there in the last few races because I think if you go into the winter season with that sort of gap, it's very hard to regain that confidence not running over the winter. That's all fair, John, isn't it? I mean, you look at the uh, the behaviour of, of, of Lance Stroll after the, the qualifying on Friday. He, he threw a steering wheel. He appeared to not be observing the, the correct weighing protocols as well. Appeared again, I'd say, to, to push his personal trainer out of the way uh, after the, the you know, leaving the garage. Um. I mean, you'll probably come on board. Some people saying, you know, that's that's awful behaviour. You can't be acting like that, no matter how you've done in, in qualifying. But I suppose you're, you 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 can come at it from the driver's perspective as well, and maybe understand how he feels that way. Well, obviously, to me, it's all about frustration. He's frustrated with his own himself, with his own pace, uh, and just his, he he didn't control his emotions. Remember, you, you, we've got cameras everywhere these days in the pits, in the pit lane, wherever. So. Wherever you go, if you're in a an, in a mood or in a bad frame of mind, somebody's going to capture it and it's going to be put up somewhere. So it's very difficult to escape, and that's that's another pressure that drivers are having to you know cope with and deal with. But to me, I mean, if the team is supporting him as I hope they will do or should do, they should take the the performance of Fernando and overlay it against Strolls, and I'm sure they're doing this anyway to see what Fernando was doing in any given corner or on the complete lap and talk to, to Lance about it and say, you know, Fernando is breaking a little bit later here or a little bit earlier there, and help as best possible. Because the cars today, they're, they're so pre-prepared before they get to the racetrack, there's so much of the work is done on simulation that when they get to the circuit, unless you've got something really dark, there's not a massive amount of changes are carried out. And, of course, once the cars go into park for a condition, there's not much you can do or little you can do uh, after that anyway. So I think that he needs more assistance from the team. Maybe, maybe somebody needs to put their arm around him and just give him that sort of moral support that he may or may not be getting. I mean, he should be getting it from his own team anyway. But, you know, Fernando is a tough act to be a member, a part of a team with. But, you know, it's, at the same time, there's got to be lots of positives to be taken out of that out of that association. So somehow or other, somebody has got to work with Lance and get him back up to speed, get his confidence back, get rid of this frustration. 
Yeah, that, that it was it was interesting. Even Bernie, I was watching on the, the Sky Sports F one coverage, and, and Naomi Skiff was was talking about uh, his behavior after the qualifying on Friday, and she was saying it's totally inappropriate, cannot behave in that way. And and her, the point she made was, uh, and and this is a quote: No matter how disappointing your day has been, those are the people that work to get you on track to make it happen for you. You can't be treating your team like that, um, which I thought was interesting. So I guess there is a balance between. You can't be doing that, but also the, the 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 heat of the moment. To excuse the pun, yeah, I I, I definitely you know it, the same applies on the pet wall. The same applies to every member in team kit. From my you know understanding, you're on the pet wall. You have a bad decision. The safety car comes out at the wrong time. Many many people on the pit wall over many many years have slammed the fist on the desk. You know, had a shake of the head, you know, cheered potentially when something's gone wrong for someone else, whatever it might be. Those emotions are there and very, very hard to control in the heat in the moment. And as much as I have been one of those persons that has hit the desk or whatever, I have not pushed anyone else off the pit wall. And I'd like to think it'd be considered pretty negatively if I did, because despite the emotion, and of course on the pit wall, the emotion is not the same in the cockpit. I'm not saying it is, but that is, they are a professional athlete. You're no longer in the junior series. You're no longer in carton. You know that the world is judging you. And in many ways, I see getting out and throwing the steering wheel, fine. Mm. I'm okay with that, actually. And imagine the team would rather it the other way around because the steering wheel's very expensive. Mm. But stuff like that, that emotion, sit in the car for a minute, you know, whatever it takes to just get off that boiling point just enough. And people over time, you know, we talk, we do a lot of work. We actually done a lot of work within Aston Martin on this sort of, you know, raw emotion, like the chimp theory. How can you control that, you know, raw emotion within you? And it's one of those things. You find a coping me- mechanism. We're all old enough. Lance is old enough to know if he gets out of the car in that instant, he's he's going to be annoyed. And how do you deal with that? Because I, I do think it is, and like I say, the, the box the side side of the wall going in throw the helmet whatever it is but I think you know the potential of pushing another person is different and people have missed weigh-ins views in the past and stuff so that, that, that's all okay whatever but it is just that little bit and I do feel and this is going to sound a bit weird from the outside world but there are lots of people in the pit lane that have a really good support network Checo has spoken many times as one of those people that his family are all there his friends are all there he's got this really and I, I sometimes worry that Lance doesn't have that. You know, yes, it's his father's team, but his father's there work. And he's not there sitting chatting about the football or other things to relieve a bit of the stress. And a lot of the support work in these people in these very privileged positions are people that want to be there because of the money, not people that are there as genuine friends, not the genuine shoulder for someone that you can share that raw emotion with or go and have a chat about whatever, golf, whatever it is that relaxes the brain. And that's that's my biggest worry, just having known him in the past, is the support, a genuine, genuine support network is is very difficult, I think, in his very privileged position to come across. That That's interesting as well, Bernie, that you you, you mentioned the, the chimp theory there that you worked on with with, that, with Aston Martin or the team worked on. Like that's, that's something I, I think I remember speaking to Ronnie O'Sullivan, snooker player, about that and, uh, he would have worked with Steve Peters, the uh, psychologist on that book, uh, the, the chimp theory and the chimp paradox. Like that, was that something that, that just someone on the team decided? Well, that this could be something that we should we should all look into. 
Yeah, we, we actually work with Steve as well. Brilliant. So Steve came in and spoke to the whole group, but actually you learn a lot about yourself in those conversations. Steve came in and he spoke to all of the pit crew because obviously what the pit crew they do in a very, very short period of time. So just to sort of explain, it's it's this um, removing of yourself from certain situations. So some things you operate, you know, you drive your car, you turn left, you don't really think about all the inputs that go left. That is just a part of your brain that knows how to do that. But then there's this, raw emotion you need to know what triggers you you need to know how it's going to react you need to know what your coping mechanism might be um so we worked on it loads with the pit crew we worked on it from our own you know point of view on the pit wall making decisions what it might be and i find it really useful even in my own life outside of that but there, there is more and more focus on that sort of mental capacity of the drivers as opposed to the physical that we've also talked a lot about in qatar so yeah, we work with Stephen. He's worked with a lot of the very elite. And that's what I mean. These elite sports people have, you know, access to the best of everything. So you should be dealing with all these little issues as they arise. And, you know, it, it was a surprise really to see. Mm. Uh, that, that's fascinating stuff in fairness. And Steve Peters is a fascinating guy. Definitely encourage people to read that book. Um, John, on Mercedes then, coming out of the weekend, we we, we kind of touched earlier on the... On the uh, the turn one incident that that led to the the clash between Hamilton and Russell and and Russell I guess had little room to maneuver and I think Hamilton um essentially acknowledged that afterwards it was a it's always interesting to see two teammates clash like that. Well, it was unfortunate. There was a bit of pincer movement going into turn one, and George was the one that was on the in, in the in the middle. Lewis on the softer tire on the left side of the grid had a good start, and he thought, and I think I would have concurred with them that he had an opportunity to sweep, swoop around the outside and actually take the lead. And, I mean, I mentioned at the top of the programme, I thought had that incident not occurred, that Lewis actually potentially could have won the race. If he'd gotten ahead of Max, it would have certainly changed the Red Bull strategy. And Mercedes, I think, had genuinely good pace uh, over the weekend. And I think George illustrated that after his recovery drive, bearing in mind he had to go into the pits for an additional pit stop. So the car was competitive. And Lewis made a move. Uh, he thought he had cleared Russell, but made an error, which he's acknowledged and apologised for. It's a rare time you see Lewis making an error like that on track. But maybe it was a little bit of expediency on his part, thinking, if I don't make a move at the earliest opportunity, I, I'll never get to make that move later in the race. So I think he had thought it through very, very calculatedly prior to the start. And he knew what he, what he wanted to do. He knew that going into turn one, everybody's going to go to the inside towards the apex. And the nature of that corner allowed a variety of options. And he thought, if I can get up alongside, I can swoop around the outside. And everybody's always a little bit tentative on the opening lap in the first corner. Maybe I can get the deal done and get into the lead of this race. And just regrettably, he made that marginal error of, of uh, judgment. And he was out of the race. Um, damaged Mercedes' hopes you know, trying to consolidate their position in the championship. So taking Lewis out and, and damaging George, and George did a great job in a recovery, but, you know, they could have scored triple probably the points that they ended up with at the end of the Grand Prix. Uh, we, we've touched on the fact that it's Austin uh, up next in a couple of weeks, uh, Bernie, a week and a half, I suppose, uh, from this point. But uh, that circuit of the Americas, how, how do you how do you prepare for that as a, as a race strategist? Like, what, what are the differences there? I'm just looking at last year's results for step in one, Hamilton second, and Charlotte Claire was in third, just nudging uh, ahead of Perez for the podium position. Um, but it's always a great race, isn't it? 
Yeah, it can be very variable, that one, in terms of um, the weather conditions. So there's often years where you go at the start of the year, it's quite hot. And then by the end of the weekend, it's quite cold. Um, it's one where that sort of first section, the high speed sort of S's section, if you like, is always very wind dependent a little bit. It's one of the circuits we've had loads of trouble in the past with where it's built, it becomes very bumpy. So the land moves quite a lot and you end up, you know, the MotoGP riders at one year, I think, almost refused to ride on it because it became so bumpy over the year before. So there's quite a lot going on through that circuit and more elevation change maybe than it appears, um, obviously up into turn one is very obvious on the TV, but then down all the way from there. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting one in that it can be very, very cold in the morning, but then really ramp up through the day. So you always need to sort of keep an eye on that. Um, so yeah, it would be very interesting to see the order of second, third, fourth, fifth is not set in stone in any any of the team orders. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, can McLaren close even more? There's a bit more slow speed there, some of the hairpins, which we've obviously the last few events haven't really had when we've seen McLaren do very well. So is their slow speed performance improved enough? Um, and yeah, the orders of the other behind, I think um, Mercedes, Ferrari, Aston's very, it's all very tight. It's always a race, is a race you enjoy, John. I mean, every year there seems to throw up different talking points in Austin. Well, I've always loved racing in North America, first of all. I, I just think it's a great country. Uh, they have a variety of outstanding racetracks. I think Kota is a, is a very interesting circuit because Sector 1 is very quick through that big... I mean, hang on and just point the car as best you can through the S's. Then Sector 2 is the main straight, which is just flat out. Top speed going to be critical. Then the final sector is much, much more about mechanical or you know, it's, it's a technical section rather than a pure aero section. The other factor that comes into play, and we didn't really speak much about it in Qatar, and the reason for particularly Lando Norris being frustrated was the reason he didn't out-qualify uh, Piastri was because he made track limit abuse errors. And the turn, the, the penultimate turn in Kota Everybody has been done there for track limit abuses, and I suspect we're going to see a shed load more this or the weekend ahead in uh, in Kota, where drivers will be just running too wide, pushing hard, running too wide, and it's frustrating. You've done the hard yards, you get to the penultimate corner, and your track times, your track, it's gone. And not only that, your tire will have gone as well because you've completed eighteen turns and you haven't got to the nineteenth, and your the set of tires you're on has been maxed out so there's going to be another little self-control requirement from pretty much the suspects that were guilty of it particularly in Qatar okay can I just ask you both finally before we we finish up this week on the talk of an 11th team on the grid uh, Andretti moving um seems Bernie closer to to getting their their place on the grid but still hurdles to to get through uh Mohammed Ben Sully and the FAA president looking for, for more teams and maybe fewer races. We're looking at a record 24 next season in terms of Grand Prix. Um, the likes of Williams have come out and said, we don't want an 11th team. There's going to be a, a less split in terms of prize money. Look, where do you stand on this? Do you think it's a good idea for the sport? Um, first of all, I'm surprised by the comments from the FIA that they want more teams and less races because over the last few years, all we've done is add races. So that less race comment in particular is an interesting one. The more teams... Like if you look at next year, we've got a number of drivers lost in one to pick out that we think is a good enough driver to be in a car, but not getting a drive. So we at the minute have drivers that we think should be getting the opportunity, but aren't. Now, arguably, there's some drivers on the grid that maybe shouldn't be there, but at least 
we have we're lacking from the what it looks like the opportunity for drivers to get in a car, get a drive, prove they're good enough, operate at this highest level. And if a team comes in, you know, I read a comment somewhere that if the team comes in at a good enough standard, then we should, as a sport, welcome the team. We should welcome more competition. We should welcome people being pushed harder. So totally from an outsider point of view, I think an 11th team would be good. We've had 11 teams in the past. Um, I can see why people like Williams or any team in the grid in this resource restriction, cost restriction era, that money, the split of the money, you know, losing 10% of your income, who's going to take that in any year? You know, are you going to say, oh, I'll give up 10% of my income for the good of the sport? Nobody's going to do that. But, And I think this last hurdle, getting past the teams, is actually going to be by far the most difficult one for Andretti. Um, but it raises a more interesting question potentially. And should the teams have as much of a say in regulation, in the number of teams on the grid. And when and I know there's lots of historical reasons why that's happened, but it, as an outsider watching, yes, 11 teams would be brilliant, but I think it's going to be a very hard job to get everyone to agree. Mm, 100%. Where do you stand on that on that one, John? First question I'd ask, whose championship is it? Because it should be the FIA's championship. They're the governing body of world motorsport. But it looks like Formula One has been run fundamentally by Liberty Media. They're the ones that are putting more and more events into the calendar. The you know the, the technical changes are coming in. They're being driven very much by the teams, uh, and the FIA, of course, have got to sanction those. But there's a there's a change of emphasis between the governing body and. Liberty Media. Uh, they seem to want as many races as they can. If they could get 52 races into a calendar in a year, I suspect they would do it. But in terms of having an additional team, making it 11 teams, look, back to 19... I don't want to say it, it sounds like I'm, I'm even older than that. 1977, there were 18 teams, two cars per team, turning up at a Grand Prix. In that set, we had pre-qualifying on a Thursday to get rid of four of those teams so that we then had 30 cars going into qualifying, out of which four would then drop out because they hadn't qualified, and we had 26 cars competing, 13 teams competing in a Grand Prix. Now, the scale of Formula One then was minute compared to where it is now. Where would you put 18 teams in a pit lane? You'd have to build two pit lanes. In fact, when I went to Detroit, they came up with a very novel way of dealing with that. They had a pit lane which had... Uh, about 10 teams on either side of a, of a pit lane. And then there was a big area in the middle where the teams could enter and leave the pits. I mean, it's, all these things are conceivable and possible, but fundamentally it comes down to the one dirty subject that has always bedeviled motorsport and sport in general, money. Mm-hmm. We have it, we don't want to give it away. But if Andretti has fulfilled all the requirements laid out by the FIA, I don't see why they shouldn't be allowed to compete. I mean, to deny them would be, I think, fundamentally wrong. And it would be good. I mean, then Bernie has mentioned people like Liam Lawson. On merit should be in there. And there are other talents that are not getting in, a part of which is because where Formula One has evolved to is we've got no fatalities. It's a terrible thing to have to discuss. But again, going back four decades or whatever, fatalities were a part of it or injuries were a part of it. So you had a much bigger through flow 
of drivers coming in and coming out. And I mean, I don't know how many seasons has Lewis been in Formula One now since 2007. I mean, it's eight, 16, 18 seasons. Unheard of back in those days. So there's, there's, there's a lot of areas where Formula One might need to reconsider what is the policy we want to implement. Are we going to keep drivers in Formula One because we have made it safe and therefore as long as they're competitive, they should be able to compete? Or should you say, look, here's a contract. You'll be allowed to do 10 seasons in Formula One. If you make it, great, but you're going to be signed off. You get your P45, off you go. Yeah, 100%. That that word money is certainly one that, that we keep coming back to. It'll be interesting to see where that Andretti story goes uh, and where Ben Suliam and the FIA's uh, decision-making process goes as well. Uh, guys, it's been brilliant having you as per usual. John Watson and Bertie Collins, thanks a million. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Brilliant stuff. Episode 13 of the F1 Pod on Off The Ball in the books. We'll see you next time. Good luck. The F1 Pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it.